Today we're going to talk about the importance of community in the context of dealing with life's hardships. Can anyone really endure hardship alone? After all, we weren't meant to. You could no sooner stand up against the difficulties of life as you could enjoy its delights without somebody to share the journey. God created us with an immense need for relationship, and that need is no more apparent than when we're going through hard times. Ironically, hard times actually push us apart from each other at the very time when we most need each other. And so it's no surprise that as Peter, this is now our fourth week of the study of his first epistle to a group of Christians in the area of Asia Minor, undergoing severe persecution for their faith as he writes to give them hope in hard times. It's no surprise that he eventually gets around to the importance of being in spiritual community, of pulling together and finding strength in one another. Because in community, we find strength. In family, we find belonging. And in love, we find courage. That's 1 John 4. Perfect love casts out fear. All right, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read first, uh, starting at verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone and the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So just by way of review, Peter's writing in about A.D. 64, the persecution of believers under Nero that was devastating, in particular in Rome, from which Peter is writing. He will soon, in the next few years, be put to death as a result of that very persecution, he's writing to Christians who have also come under this persecution, and he's writing to encourage them. And what we're picking up as we go through this is that this certainly is not a treatise on suffering. <laughs> 
If you want that, C.S. Lewis has a great book called The Problem of Pain. Read that, but Peter's not really interested in that. He's not arguing why or, or how, and it's not theological. It's a survival guide. Strategies for enduring hardships. But not just surviving in the way we think of it, but thriving. And so he doesn't bend once down into the tendency that many of us have when we face hardship, which is to wallow. He begins with grace and peace to you in abundance. The fact that in spite of life's issues, which are inevitable, nothing can touch the inexpressible and glorious joy that is ours in Christ. We can be joyful in all circumstances. Then he talked about the fact that hardship doesn't keep us from living the life that God called us to. You can find joy and fulfillment in life in spite of life's circumstances. It's interesting. You can tell this is a man who has gained wisdom over the years. He's been through a lot of things. I'm constantly comparing myself this time around through 1 Peter to my ideas and my life 10 years ago when I last taught 1 Peter. It's amazing the difference between, um, you know, 25 and 35. It's just, just quite remarkable. Um, I mean, 45 and 55. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite remarkable how a decade of life suddenly gives you hindsight. You know, you, you look back at yourself as a younger man and go, man, I, if I could go back, like, like that advertisement where the guy goes back and talks to his younger self and tells him to buy good insurance. You, I, I wish I could do that to that young man, but I can't. All I can do is take all that and live my life more wisely and then do what the Bible says, pass that wisdom on to the younger generation, which is part of our core values here at The Journey. I can do that. But you see in Peter this great wisdom. He's hitting all the right notes when he writes to people in hardship. He knows exactly the traps that you can fall into. He's giving us the means of avoiding all of those traps. So the third trap that he's addressing often happens to us when we face hardship, and that is the trap of isolation. We go to ground. We don't want to talk to people, and that is the most dangerous place we can be. Even psychologists recognize that isolation impacts our ability to cope. The various chemicals in our body that reduce stress are diminished, and those that kick in for the survival mode that increase stress grow. There are more heart attacks, there's more disease in people who pull away from community. Nations at war have learned the value of isolation for many, many years. Last night I was watching John McCain talk about being in the Hanoi Hilton, one of the darkest, most difficult prisoner of war facilities in modern history. The physical beatings were only one difficulty. Two years at a time in complete isolation from other soldiers had a devastating impact on them. However, there was a way that these soldiers found to communicate. It was known as the TAP code. Have any of you heard about it? Some of our vets know about it for sure. The TAP code was a very simple way of taking 25 letters of the alphabet and lining them up five across in five rows and then tapping based on the location on that grid. You could get up to like eight words a minute. And McCain talks about this relationship that he had with someone that he had never met for two years in isolation who was next door to him. Over those two years, using the TAP code, the whole prison system maintained a social structure. Even though the Vietnamese were trying to take them apart from each other, there was vibrant communication that held these soldiers together in community. 
Later on in this book, chapter 5, Peter will refer to the true enemy of the church, which was not the persecutors, but Satan himself, and he will call him what? Who remembers? A roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. Do you know how lions hunt? They will isolate the weakest and the old from the pack because once isolated, they lose the will to fight and survive. Peter is saying we desperately need each other all the more in life's hard times. And he addresses five things about spiritual community. The first thing he says is that we are united by a common birth. And that's verses 22 and 23. Let's read them again. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That phrase, born again, carries a lot of baggage in our culture these days. You know, it's one of those terms that we've used for generations, and we've not only used it, we've abused it. If you're exploring Christianity, and that's where you are in your journey today, you look at that and go, there's one of those words that I get sort of negative vibes about. But Jesus was the first one to describe beginning the journey with him with that phrase, being born again. He was talking to a man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were set against Jesus, but Nicodemus suspected that there may be truth in what Jesus was teaching. So he came at night. He's going to get in, get his questions asked, get out, be none the worse for it. He had a prepared speech. We know that you must be a man sent from God, for no one can do the things you do except God sent him. And then he opens his mouth to say the next thing, and Jesus cuts him right off and says, ah, let's, let's drop all that stuff. And let's get down to the heart of what you really need. You know what you need, Nick? Nicodemus, Nick, get it? Okay. You know what you need, Nick? You need to be born again. Well, he was as thrown by it as, as you might be when you first hear it. So he steps back and he uses a little Jewish humor. What can a man climb inside a mother's womb again? And Jesus goes on to explain that that which is born of water is water. That's physical birth. See, you're encased in embryonic fluid, and the first thing that happens when it's time for you to be born, is that that fluid breaks. You're born of water. When we had our first child, we were in a Lamaze class where there were several families all due in the same period. And the first woman who went, her water broke when she was at a grocery store, and it broke. I mean, it, whoosh. She's standing there in the middle of the aisle, and she looks around. It's the jarred goods aisle. She grabs a big jar of pickles and just, drops it right there. Clerk came up and said, ma'am, we'll, we'll clean that up. Thank you very much. That which is born of water is water. And then he went on and said, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, being born again is a, an analogy for coming to life eternally through the grace of God by means of putting our faith and trust in him. All those who have had that spiritual birth are children of God, and only children of God have had that experience. You're held together by a common birth. It's amazing, isn't it, how you travel, you run to people, you find out they're Christians, and there's like this, oh, yeah, we know, don't we? You know nothing else about them, but you call them brother or sister. I remember being in Fiji, part of an international pastor's conference for different ministers from the island nations, and we were doing some training for them. And I'll never forget, when we prayed together, we all prayed in our natural language. By the end of the week, I swore I knew what those men were praying. 
my spirit was so in tune to them because of our common ancestry, right? He, he says, it is not from perishable seed. That word seed is sperm. And he's saying in the same way, our physical birth is mortal. That's what he means by perishable. Your spiritual birth is birthed of God. It is imperishable. It is a God-conceived life that we have. And it's all of ours together. That's the first thing. And if I take that long for all these, we're going to be here till evening. Let's roll through. The second is not just a common birth, but an uncommon love. Same verses. Since you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Love for your brother might be better translated love as brothers because the, the, there are two words in the Greek here that speak of love. The first one is phileo, and that is brotherly love. It's not distinctively male, phileo. That's the primary word for the city, Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. There's a type of love that ought to be ours simply by our common birth. But then he goes on, and he uses the word agapeo. That is God-like love, self-sacrificial. It is unconditional love. It's interesting, there are four, arguably five words in the Greek language that we would translate as love, but the one that the Christians landed on to describe truly God-like love, agapeo, was not a commonly used word in this day. It was like they came and they reclaimed it because the love we're to have, as Jesus said, is to set us apart. It needs to be a different kind of love. Where do we learn about that type of love? Well, we learn it from Jesus, what we read just a few minutes ago. What is this love like that is to be ours as God's children? It is a love that has the greatest among us on our knees, washing the filth off of each other's feet. It is a love that is demonstrated by God in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it is that all-consuming, completely self-sacrificing love that is to be ours for one another. I've experienced that love from fellow brothers and sisters through very difficult times when it was the one thing that could be counted on, and we all need that, and we all need to be able to give it to one another. We are united by an uncommon love. The third thing, we are united by our common weaknesses. Now, this is where we get into the thing that can get in the way of our unity. Look at what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. We read those words, and it's very easy to say, well, I'm glad I don't do any of those, because they're big words. These are words that show up in lawsuits. And since I haven't been sued for malice or for slander by anybody, I must not be guilty of it. Let's look at these words, not for what they've become in our legal system, but what they mean to you and I in our everyday experience. The word malice simply means meanness, being hurtful to others. Anybody here committed malice? God bless both of you for your radical honesty. We've all been hurtful. Deceit. The Greek word is to catch with bait. That's manipulation. That's what that means. Trickery. Having our way by working people. 
not respecting them, using them. Anybody ever practice deceit in this room? You're not catching on very quickly here, are you? (laughs) Third, hypocrisy. That literally means behind a mask. It's to act. It's to be less than who we're supposed to be. Anybody ever been a hypocrite in, in, in this room? Right? Hypocrisy. Envy. Envy means to resent someone because of their blessing. That's envy. And why not me? Anybody here ever commit envy? <laughs> and how about slander? That's the big one. None of us want to think that we've committed slander, but all slander is is going behind someone with criticism. Scripture sees that type of communication as evil because it speaks about someone to another rather than following the biblical mandate of going to your brother or sister and speaking to them. Anybody here ever practice slander? The point is, these are all weaknesses that we have in common. Stop giving yourself a pass because it's these habits that each of you, praise God, not me, but each of you (laughs) struggle with that is exactly what will divide us. How sad is it today that the body of Christ is more known for the denominations pointing fingers at each other and our anger towards people and our anger with each other than for our love? You know why? It's because of this, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And Peter says we need to put it aside. We need to put it to death. We're united by our common weaknesses, which unfortunately can ununite us. Fourth, a common objective unites us. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here Peter continues the analogy of birth and growth. In the same way that we were born into this body by the work of by the conception of God through the Holy Spirit, we now have a common goal, and that is that we should grow. We need to grow together. I would argue that spiritual growth happens in community. That's why come October we're we're launching small groups, and they will forever be a part of who we are from that time on because we recognize the need to grow together. All the one another's of the Bible, and it's a lengthy list, occur in that community that is found in the life group. We do life together. We, we need that, and we are called to grow. It's interesting that he says, like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk. This milk was mom's milk, and he's saying the Holy Spirit feeds us. And we are to crave that growth as the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. And we are to see that as the Word of God. We allow the Holy Spirit to feed us through the Word of God so that we can grow strong. And then he goes on, he says, we do that now that you've tasted and seen that the Lord's good. In other words, you've tried it and you go, oh, yeah, I need more of that. Many of us, when we first come to faith, man, we are so excited. Our appetite for truth is so strong. We've tasted it. We say, this is great. Life happens. Our sense is dull. We forget how good that meal is, and we stop eating. 
We need to continue in that. We have this common objective together. Finally, and we're going to take a big chunk here, we are part of a common culture that unites us. Now, before we launched public services, I taught significantly on the following passage in a series called Living Stones. That is available on the website. And so it allows me to feel a little more comfortable just taking the broad strokes of this and giving you the big picture. And we're going to talk about this common culture that we are uniquely a part of. And the culture ultimately is characterized in verse 10 where he calls us the people of God. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the very people of God. Well, how did that happen? Well, here's what happened. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. The mercy that was extended to us in the cross, and by putting faith and trust in that, has given us new birth, has brought us into a new society as citizens of the kingdom of God. That's the primary idea of this piece of 1 Peter. And in order to build to that conclusion, Peter goes back and he uses analogies from the Old Testament, Israel, the people of God before the cross, and brings them into the New Testament to say that we are the people of God. And notice the distinction here. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Let me be clear. The church is the people of God today. In the same way in the Old Testament, Israel was the people of God. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham because like him, we've put our faith and trust in Christ. Abraham looking forward to the promise, us looking back at the promise with full knowledge, have put our faith in him, and we are his descendants. We have become the people of God. It is a unique distinction. The church is the fulfillment of what God began in Israel. We are spiritual Israel. He uses four basic analogies from the Old Testament. The first is that of the temple. When he refers to us as living stones in a spiritual house in which Christ dwells. We are not just individuals. We are living stones, each of us individually and uniquely cut to fit into your place in this big and glorious thing that Jesus is building called his church. And in the same way in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was the spiritual house in which God dwelt. This church is the spiritual house in which Christ dwells on earth. Second, he talks about this common Old Testament idea of the Jewish people, and that's being a chosen people. We're not just called to God as individuals. He calls us to one another. He calls us into the people of God. It simply means we belong to God. He uses that phrase here as well. The third analogy is about being a priesthood. We are a holy and a royal priesthood. Holy because we're set apart for a unique purpose, to serve God. Royal because our heritage of priesthood is Christ, which is not from the Old Testament priesthood, but from the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Christ in the Old Testament, the king of Salem, which eventually was where Jerusalem, New Salem, was built. And the writer of Hebrews says, Christ lays his claim of priesthood from that, and we take our priesthood from Christ. 
See, so there's a royalty there. That's a powerful thought. But it's more the image of the priesthood and the purpose that they fulfilled that's important. The priest stood between God and mankind. They represented mankind to God, but they also represented God to mankind. They were the mediator between God and man. Now today, we know that there's only one true mediator, and that's Jesus Christ, the great high priest. But we serve with him and in his name. We intercede on behalf of the world and cry for the souls of men and women. But at the same time, we represent that same God and Christ to the world around us. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices, but we are also to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light, Peter says. We are representatives of Christ to the world around us. We have that in common. It's part of our new society. But then the fourth analogy he uses is that of being a holy nation. We are a new society set apart. That rings with the first verses of this letter where Peter says that we are aliens and strangers in this world because we are citizens of a new kingdom and we are to live that God life as part of his new society in this world as they watch us. So we are both God's representatives in the world, but we are not of this world. We live by a new set of rules, we live by a different standard. We live within grace. Our love is more magnificent. What Christ demonstrates through us is miraculous and for his glory and so that all people will be drawn to him. We are called into the world, but yet we are called out of the world to live in this new society. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. It's interesting. We, we don't get to run into hiding no matter how hostile the culture around us gets. We don't get to go to ground. We come together, we live our life in this new community in a way that it is light to the world around us. We declare this glorious truth of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. And that light shines even brighter in the darkest places. You've heard me talk about a trip our family took to um, Mammoth Caves, on one of those tours, this giant, giant opening cavern that we'd come into, and the tour guide said, we're going to do something here. We want you to sit down and grab your kids, and we're going to turn the lights off, and you're going to experience what it really means to be in darkness. And I remember I'd never experienced that dark. I, I thought I had known dark until, until that. Total absence of daylight. You could feel it. Then the guide turned on a single light, and it filled the entire room, and we knew who was holding it. That's the light we carry in the darkest of times. God is even more glorified when we, his new society, pull together and live life for his glory and rejoice in him with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what we can do to hold each other, to carry each other through. John McCain, for two years, communicated with a man who he had never met by tapping. They talked about sports. They talked about family. The beatings and inquisition they had received they encouraged each other when they were down. After two years of not seeing a single human being except those that shoveled food under his gate, 
John McCain was ushered out of his cell, and a group of them were thrown into a truck to be moved. And on their way to whatever the Viet Cong had for them, they were sitting next to each other and tapping on each other's thighs. (laughs) And the man sitting next to John McCain tapped his initials, and he said, who are you? It was his neighbor. And for the first time, their eyes met. They saw face to face what they had already become to each other in heart and spirit. And they continued to be the best of friends for their entire life. I want to suggest we need that type of sense with each other. We need to have the ability to pull together and recognize that we have a code. We have have a code with one another. It's, It's a code of unconditional love. And it would sound something like this in tap code. Love. You. Father, may that be true of us. May we love one another. Hold each other firmly to the life that is truly life in all circumstances. And may the world see that love and be drawn to it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.